you to join me in uh, once again in the book of First Peter in the fourth chapter, First Peter chapter four. And uh, I just want to say I'm glad you're here worshiping with us today, and we're so thankful that, that you're here to, to study the scriptures with us. Um, I just want to make mention of a couple of things. First of all, uh, tonight we have a, uh, a pretty exciting evening lined up, and we hope you'll join us. We have uh, some of our kids and youth activities still going on at 5 o'clock, and I want to invite you. We, we, we have our missional community training uh, at 5 o'clock. Even if you haven't been there yet, we want to invite you to join us as we as we pray and talk about forming missional communities. Tonight we'll be talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in, in, in this endeavor and the importance and the necessity of the Spirit of God's work uh, in, in all of this endeavor. And then uh, right after that at 6.30, we're having a good time as we uh, turn on the game and um, have a chili cook-off. And so we want to invite you to join that. We'll have some other stuff to eat. Uh, I'd love for you to come out. And even if you're not a football fan, there'll be lots, lots of fun, lots of laughter and a good time. And so we want to invite you to, to join us for that tonight. If you found your place in 1 Peter chapter 4, we... We'll read this passage here, the, just the first six verses together. And here's what Peter tells the believers. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The title of today's message is, You Have Two Options. We live in a world that's, that's filled with options. We have choices, choices on how we can spend our vacation, choices on how we invest our money, choices in the kinds of sports our kids are involved in. We have choices all across the board that we have. In fact, this week I was uh, using the Hungry Howie's app to order a pizza, and I was amazed. Like I, You would think that something like that was just like, hey, pepperoni pizza or something, it, but that wasn't the case. Uh, there was, uh, first of all, I had to pick the shape of my pizza, whether I wanted a round, the style of crust, whether I wanted a deep dish. And then from there, I had to choose the flavoring of my crust. Do I just want a regional or there's like about eight or 10 different flavors that you could have on the crust. And, and I, I'm like, I'm already getting tired. We haven't even moved past crust shape and flavor into the, the, the toppings. And even from there, you have all kinds of toppings, things that I would never have even imagined putting on pizza. And you can choose whether you want it on a half, a quarter, which, which sides. And, and there's like uh, just one after another, step after step, all kinds of options and choices. And on one hand, it's nice. You can customize it exactly the way you want it. In other ways, it gets to be a little bit dizzying. We're used to having lots of choices when it comes to so many areas of our life. 
But when we open up the scriptures and we read about the big question of life as to who we're going to follow, as to whose, whose, whose system we're going to follow, we really have two options. The, the, the scriptures here today, this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, shows us that we have two options. And last week, I, I kind of uh, swung the pendulum into extremes. Last week, I didn't have any blanks to fill in or anything like that. And this week, I'm, I kind of went overboard in it. So if you're filling notes, uh, hopefully uh, you can catch all this up. But, but basically, we're going to look at two different options that the text presents to us. There's option number one is the indulgent life. And then the second one, which we'll consider in just a moment, is the Christ-centered life. You can probably already guess which one we're going to land on, but we're going to take a moment here and talk about the indulgent life for just a moment. Apostle Peter contrasts the way that they're supposed to live with the way that they have lived in the past. And so we're going to look for a moment at letter A, the qualities of the indulgent life, the qualities of the indulgent life. The first thing he says is that, that these qualities here, that, that, that in the in the past, these believers lived for human desires, to do what they wanted to do. Um, verse 2, he says uh, that, uh, that to live no longer the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires. This was just the impulses that they had at their, at their whim and will. It's just kind of sort of doing what they wanted to do. I still remember, um, you know, one time when I was, I don't know, probably... 11 or 12, uh, I was sitting at a soccer game watching my younger brother, and um, my cousin who was sitting next to me was my same age, but uh, significantly taller than I was. He was growing very rapidly, and, and uh, he, he'd had a, he had a problem with his knees at the time uh, where he had some, a tremendous amount of pain in him. Some of you heard maybe Osgood Slaughter's disease where you get a little lump there just below your knee and it's, it's parts of your body are just growing too fast for your ligaments and everything to catch up. So he had, it was very, very painful for him and very tender there by his knee. And uh, my, my mom and, and another lady uh, who was sitting there in the crowd were talking about my cousin's knee and, and the, the lady who was talking to my mom said, well, is it painful? And before my mom could even answer, I said, let's see, whack. And I smacked his knee and the dude just fell out of his chair and crumbled and I was, I was kind of proud of myself that I could make my big cousin, who probably could take me in a straight-up fight, I could make him crumble to the, to the ground, and then I was immediately in trouble, and uh, the consequences ensued. I don't, and, and, and the lady asked, why, why did you do that? And I didn't really have a great answer. It was just impulsive, like, does it hurt? I wonder. Boom. You know, as, before we came to Christ... Scriptures teach that we just sort of had these impulses. We just lived according to our own desires. We did what we wanted to do. We did whatever direction the flesh led us. That's the quality of the indulgent life. And we're called to no longer live that way. The second quality that he mentions here is doing what the Gentiles do. Really, these are sort of one and the same. But this quality here is, is joining the crowd, jumping in with the way that the Gentiles lived. He says in verse 3, he said, you've already spent enough time doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. Peter says here, and, and we, won't, we don't necessarily need to break down what each of these means here, you get the idea that this was a life spent 
given over to sinful choices, unrestrained behavior. I'm not interested in what God has to say. I'm interested in doing what I want to do. And here's the qualities, Peter says. We see lists like this several times throughout the New Testament. Paul does it frequently. This is your old way of life. These are the qualities that you used to exhibit before you met Jesus. It was clear that most of these believers, I mean, this was first, these were first-generation Christians. These were people who had gotten saved in their adulthood, and they had, they had spent time living apart from God, and this was what they had to show for it. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 4 when he says this, Therefore I say this and testify to the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. What a summary of the indulgent life. Because of the hardness of their hearts and their ignorance, they just gave themselves over to whatever they wanted to do. That's the quality of the indulgent life. And then Peter shows us, letter B, the results of the indulgent life. This is the effect. Just in case these Christians had forgotten they had forgotten what they had turned away from. They had forgotten the fruit of their former life. Peter wants to remind them. And he says here in verse 3, the, the first one we want to see is emptiness. There was an emptiness. You get this, you get this picture from his wording at the beginning of, of this verse. He says, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. It, it, it has the connotation there of you've already wasted enough time on this. You've already blown enough of your life. Enough already. It, let's be done with this. It reminds me so poignantly of Romans chapter 6. In verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul says this. Again, hearkening back to the the, the past lives of these Roman Christians. He says, For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So, what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. What an important reminder, especially, listen, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, or if you, like me, grew up in a Christian home. And maybe you never lived this sort of the version of, of before Christ living with given over to evil desires, orgies, drunkenness, that kind of a lifestyle. Maybe you grew up as kind of a, kind of a good unbeliever, a, a, a pharisaical type of unbeliever. Like you didn't, you didn't do crazy, wild, obvious, you know top of the list type of sins. We're still in the same boat. And you can, you can forget, maybe. You can forget the emptiness that existed in that before Christ life, that indulgent life. And Paul asked this amazing question that every believer 
should ask. And, and you know what? It's a, great, it's a great evangelistic question as you're talking to unsaved friends. As, again, as you're maybe working and ministering out of a relationship with them, ask them, what kind of fruit do you have from living this way? You go out every Friday night, Saturday morning, you can't remember what you did the night before. What, what's, help me understand what, what, what kind of fruit this is born. Like, are you, are you proud? Are you excited about the, the way that you've lived your life here? The Apostle Paul in this passage and Peter in this passage wants us to remember the emptiness of sin at the risk of stating the obvious, choosing sin is always the wrong choice. And you may think, well, thank you, Pastor, for that profound exegetical insight. But here's what that means, though, at the end of the day. When the Spirit of God convicts you and I of sin, we're fools for continuing to choose it. You see, the, the folly of sin is not always apparent and obvious in the moment. Otherwise, who would choose it? None of us wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to do something stupid today. Well, okay, if you woke up that morning and you woke up this morning and you said that to yourself, don't raise your hand right now. Just come talk to us later on. But none of us are like... Like, as Christ followers, none of us are like, I want to make a train wreck of my relationship with Jesus today. Let's see what we can do. Like, like the folly of sin, the emptiness of sin is not obvious in the moment. We need the reminders of the Word of God to say, hey, take my word for it. I, I, can't, tell, I can't tell you how many times now as a parent of a teenager... <laughs> Those of you who have raised it, you, you, you knew this long before I did, but we're still living in the throes of it now. And I can't tell you how many times I've said to my kids, you have to take my word for it. Spending your money on this is a stupid idea. I promise you, you will regret it. Going here and doing this is utter foolishness. Just trust me. I've been there. I've done it. I've watched other people do it. You just have to take my word for it. Listen, Christians, maybe you didn't live a life of open and unfettered, sinful, like full throttle, I'm going into this sort of living. But let's take Peter's word for it. Let's take Paul's word for it that, that the fruit of this is death. That the emptiness of a life lived for the indulgence of our flesh will bring nothing but destruction. And so when the Spirit of God convicts us of these things, as believers, that we're starting to veer off into that indulgent life, we need to turn and repent. Proverbs 26, 11 says, As a dog returns to its vomit, so also a fool repeats his foolishness. May we listen to the Spirit of God. And this also, to take this a step further, this means that if a brother or sister comes and points out the way in which we're veering into that indulgent life, 
rather than getting angry at them for having the audacity to stick their nose into our business, we should embrace them and thank them for having the kindness and the love for us that it took for them to speak into our life and, and have the, 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 the kindness to say, listen, you're, you're, you're heading this direction, following fleshly desires. Because if the end of that is death, and someone points us to that, they've rescued us from death. Our first response is usually our pride rises up and we get up in arms and we get into that, well, yeah, but what about you and your life? And you got this going on. And we put up the walls and the, the, activate the inner lawyer, as, as Paul Tripp likes to say, and, and we begin to defend and excuse. When in reality, we should be on our knees repenting and thanking that brother or sister for loving us enough to point us to the truth. This means that when we become aware of sin in our heart, we should humbly call it what it is and seek to flee from it. Flee from the emptiness of the indulgent, indulgent life. And then secondly, the second result of the indulgent life is judgment. Verse 5 reminds us that they will give an account one day to the one, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Lest we begin to think that um, lest we begin to think that those who live indulgent lives have it made, that maybe we can live this way, and then perhaps at the end we'll turn to Christ. We're reminded that there's an account that is to be given. My brothers and sisters, hell is real. Being separated from God for all eternity is a real thing that the scriptures teach. The consequences are more than, I think I would have been happier had I lived God's way than my own way. The consequences are eternal. But then option B, the one that we're called to is the Christ-centered life. And we see here right off the bat that Peter shows us the, the qualities of the Christ-centered life. Here's, here's what this is going to look like. He says, therefore, beginning in verse 1, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding. He says this, 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 word, this word understanding it means a mindset, a way of thinking, a mentality. He's like, you have to choose to think a certain way if you're going to live the Christ-centered life. There has to be a way of orienting your mind towards the truth and towards the things God says that will have ripple effects. It begins in the mind. And here's two qualities I wrote, it, wrote down. The first one is resolve. The first quality of a Christ-centered life is the idea of, of resolving. We could say it maybe um, uh, preparing, uh, being ready. Is, is the, the passage begins, as chapter 4 begins, we see Peter using the word therefore. He's calling us back. This is such an important word. Every time you see this turn up in, in, the, in the scriptures and especially in the letters Therefore, hearkens back to what he's been saying about Christ's suffering on our behalf. 
Christ humbly going to the cross, willing to endure persecution and reaping the persecution and death, and then reaping the rewards, the eternal rewards of harvesting salvation for all who believe. He says, keep that in mind. Based upon Christ's example, he says, arm yourselves with the same understanding. This word arm is a military word, and, it, and it's, it's what you would imagine. It's, it's carrying a sidearm, carrying a, carrying a weapon, going into battle fully armed. The image is that if, if you're not carrying a weapon, well, a, a weapon does no good if it's not with you. The, the, the weapon has to be at hand. You, you know that if you have an intruder break into your house in the middle of the night, and if, if you're someone who has a firearm and you want to protect yourself, you know that that has to be accessible. It does no good if it's, if it's with you, if it's not with you. In the same way, we're called to be armed with a mentality as believers. We're not just called to believe. We're called to be armed with a certain mindset, a mindset that says, I'm willing to suffer for Christ when that comes as a result of my devotion to him. There's a determination here, a willingness that says, I'm all in. I, I, I am yours. I am devoted to you. I have resolved to follow you. And it's this willingness to say, okay, when persecution comes, I recognize that that is the instrument of God confirming that I'm a child of God and allowing me to walk in the same footsteps that my Lord and Savior walked in. This idea of resolution or readiness was brought to our attention back in chapter 1 in verse 13, where Peter says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, are your minds ready for action? Are you prepared to suffer for Jesus Christ? as you live the Christ-centered life? Are you armed or is your, your gun tucked away somewhere that somewhere you've forgotten? Is your mindset a mindset that says, I'm all in and I'm ready to follow? The second quality of the Christ-centered life, he says in verse 2, is living for God's will. This, this sums it up. He, he says, so that the remainder of our time in the flesh is no longer for human desires. That's the contrast with the, the fleshly way of living, the indulgent life. And he says, but for God's will. He states it really succinctly. You're living for the desires or the plan of God. Not my own not living according to my whims and wishes, not doing whatever comes uh, to mind in the moment, but casting yourself upon God's will. This starts by knowing the word of God, knowing his will through his word, but also spending time in prayer and asking God's spirit to lead us throughout the day. So as those times come up and we're tempted to, to veer off into the indulgent life, 
We can be attuned to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and he can say, uh-uh, not that way. Let's not click this website. Let's not watch that right now. Let's not spend our money on this. Let's not fritter away our time on that. We're tuned into the Spirit of God so that we can say, no, I found myself even just yesterday with some quiet time. Uh, my wife was out of town, and the kids were skiing, and I was just some quiet time in the house and I had some time to study and I was reading the scriptures and all of a sudden like little random weird things were popping in my mind like not not crazy wicked sinful things but just like like I wonder I wonder who's leading the golf tournament right now so I pick up my phone open up the PGA Tour app and I'm looking to see who's leading the waste management open and I'm starting to watch some highlights and before I know I've spent 10 minutes when I have an opportunity and I, and I needed some time in the word some time in prayer and I'm frittering it away on something that doesn't matter I think that's where Satan has us in our cro- in his crosshairs for some of us yes it's giving ourselves over to to this former way of life. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's, it's uh, selfish, all kind of prideful living and, and, and attitudes and, and maybe a, uh, a spirit of grumpiness that just manifests itself in everybody that you interact with. Maybe there's, there's these like, clear-cut sinful things. But I think the, the, the way that Satan is attacking the church, in, in the United States at least, is with distractions. Simple, like, maybe even like good things. And and pulling us away from this Christ-centered way of living. He calls us to live our lives for God's will, not our own fleshly desires. The qualities of a Christ-centered life. One that's resolved to have our mind armed, ready, alert, prepared to suffer for Jesus in a heart that longs to live for the will of God. And here's the result of that. Let her be the result of the Christ-centered life. When, when we live with our hearts and minds ready for action, when we live with a passion to do the will of God, here's what ensues. Number one, holiness through suffering. And there's an interesting phrase in verse 1 that has, has tripped up a lot of commentators. And he says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Some of your translations may even say, has ceased from sin. The, 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 the sticking point, the question that we could kind of get from our English translation is, well, does that mean that if I go through suffering, then, then I won't sin anymore? Well, I, I don't think that the text is saying that. I don't think that when you, when you compare with other scriptures that, that the Bible teaches that we're going to get to this point of sinless perfection. What I think he's getting at here is that, that suffering reveals that you have a heart that says, I'm done with sin. I'm done living for the flesh. It doesn't mean that you're not going to sin. We're all going to sin at some, some point. And we're, we're all going to, at times, give in in that moment to those fleshly desires. But, but when you're, listen, <laughs> if you're not all in, you're not going to suffer for Jesus. You're going to bail. I mean, who wants to go through hardship 
for someone you're not committed and devoted to. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, and his demands have not gripped your heart, like take up my cross and follow me, anyone who wants to follow me must be willing to forsake everything. Like if that hasn't gripped our hearts, when the hard stuff comes, when our best friends start mocking us for following Jesus, we're going to bail. We'll be like, well, I just go to, my, go to church because my wife likes it and makes her happy, so I'm there. We'll, we'll, we'll cower out in that moment. But when, when we're willing to lean into suffering like our Savior did, when we're willing to take the shots, when we're willing to suffer the loss of our reputation, the loss of relationships, a loss of status, it demonstrates that we have a heart that says, Jesus is more precious than my sin. That, that, that whatever comes from following and treasuring him is worth what I'm, ever, what I'm walking through right now. Because this here is temporary. But following him deals with eternity. When we're willing to say that, when we're willing to endure the scorn and mocking for our faith, it demonstrates that sin has taken a back seat in our lives. You can see how, <laughs> listen, if you, if you tune in and you're listening to sermons or reading blogs that talk about following Jesus being a problem-free life or a life of smooth sailing, you're not hearing the gospel. You're not hearing, you're certain, they're certainly not preaching through 1 Peter. Following Christ involves suffering. But, but what, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter, I think it's chapter 4, is true that he says, I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, the, the, the sufferings that I'm going through right now, they're nothing compared to the weight of glory that will be revealed at the end. Like this is just a blip on the radar screen. If you want a litmus test of whether you're living a Christ-centered life, reflect on how you handle suffering and especially persecution for your faith. The second result of the Christ-centered life is that we get to experience true life. Tonight, if you watch the Super Bowl, you'll be inundated with commercials that will try to convince you what true happiness, true joy, uh, where it can be found. Whether it's in a certain type of beverage, a certain type of lifestyle, you name it. They'll, they'll, we'll, be, we'll be inundated with advertisements saying, you need this so you can look like this person on your TV screen or you can look as happy as these people look on your TV screen. You must have this. And in the moment, sometimes they can be pretty convincing. 
But when we turn back to the scriptures, we find that true life, true joy, true contentment is found only in Jesus Christ. And he finishes this section off by saying in verse 6, For this reason the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. Meaning that the gospel was preached to those who were once alive and they're now dead. It's not preaching the gospel to, to dead people. But so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Now, I don't know about your translation, but mine has spirit uh, in the lower case. And I looked at this because I thought, this seems like he's talking about life in the Holy Spirit, not being alive like the human spirit being alive. And what's interesting is that we saw a, a very similar um, uh, phraseology back in chapter 2, and I, uh, I didn't, uh, no, chapter 3, verse 18 where he talks about that Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. It's, it's the same Greek structure. And, and I think what, what Peter is saying in verse 18 of chapter 3 is a parallel to chapter 4, verse 6, where he's saying, listen, we, Jesus was made alive by the Spirit of God in the same way we as, as we, as we uh, trust Christ, and as we one day breathe our last, we will be made alive by the Spirit, just like our Savior was. We're called to experience life. Jesus came, not that we would just have eternal life in the future, but so that we could experience eternal and abundant life even now. In John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. No matter what the world tells us about the indulgent life, the life lived according to my whims and my desires, the life that aligns with my former way of living, no matter what the world tells us, no matter what our, our feelings tell us in the moment, there is no life there. There's temporary pleasure. There's fleeting glimpses of it. But in the end, there's not really, truly life. Jesus says, I've come so that you can have abundant life. Not just so that you will when you, after you die, but so that you can even now experience true life. Love, Paul even uses that phrase in 1 Timothy 6.18, taking hold of that which is truly life. Not, not mere apparitions or false substitutes, but that which is truly life. My brothers and sisters, unlike ordering pizza or going to Hamburger Hill today after the service, where we have all kinds of options, as followers of Christ, it, well, when it comes to this life, we're given two options. There's follow Jesus or, and live the Christ-centered life, or there's the indulgent life. Live for the will of God or live for fleshly desires. And in the moment, there are times when those fleshly desires look awfully good, but the Christ-centered life is different. It's a life that promises true life and abundant joy. 
want to finish with this. As I said a moment ago, our enemy, you can say what you want about him. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a cheat. He's rebellious. We go on and on. But Satan's not stupid. And he knows, he knows how to lure us. And he knows that so often it's going to come through just little steps, drawing us little by little in the wrong direction. Chances are you're not going to be fully following Jesus all in and then the next day go cheat on your spouse. He's all about baby steps. He's all about little incremental steps in pointing us in the wrong direction. My brothers and sisters, that's where we need to be most alert. That's where we need to be most watchful in the ways that in, in, in small, seemingly insignificant ways, he's calling us to inch towards the indulgent life. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard tells a, this parable of the disastrous effects of not putting to death the desires of the flesh. One springtime, a goose was flying with his friends northward across Europe. During the flight, he came down in a barnyard where there were tame geese. He enjoyed some of their corn. He stayed for an hour, and then an hour led into two hours, and then that led into a day. A week passed. Before he knew it, a month had gone by. He loved the good food. It was great. It was well taken care of. So he stayed all summer long. One autumn day when the same wild geese were winging their way southward again, they passed overhead. And the goose on the ground, he heard their cries. And he was filled with a strange thrill and joy. And he desired to fly with them once again. And with a great flapping of wings, he rose into the air to rejoin his old comrades in flight. But he found that his good and easy living had made him soft and heavy, so he could rise no higher than the eaves of the barn. He dropped back again into the barnyard and said to himself, oh well, my life is safe here after all, and the food is good and plenteous. And every spring... In autumn, when he heard the wild geese honking, his eyes would gleam for just a moment, and he'd begin flapping his wings. Finally, the day came when the wild geese flew overhead, uttering their cries, and he paid no attention whatsoever. In fact, he failed to hear them at all. My brothers and sisters, we have an enemy who longs to see us given over to the indulgent life. And chances are, his beckoning will be little by little. A bite here, a bite there. God calls us to an alertness, an awareness, a readiness. To daily pursue the will of God, the Christ-centered life. This morning, I don't know where you find your hearts. My prayer is that, that we would be ever watchful. And if God's Spirit is convicting you of ways in which you've drifted, and maybe even right now He's showing you that there's been a huge drift, 
maybe it's only just begun. As we have some time to pray here in a moment, there, several of our elders would up, be, will be up here, and we'd love to pray with you. If God's Spirit is convicting you, we would love to walk with you and see whatever we could do to encourage you to begin to fly again. And if, as you've leaned into suffering, if you've experienced the joy through Jesus Christ of that steadfastness, of that faithfulness, and you can say, yes, pastor, I know what that's like, and I want to continue to press on. May God lead your heart toward others that you can walk alongside them and help them on that journey. To say, listen, I've been there and done that. I've seen the folly of the indulgent life. Let me show you what it's like living the Christ-centered life. Come walk with me. And I'll show you what Jesus meant when he talked about abundant life. Wherever your heart is this morning, I know the Spirit of God is calling us to respond. We'd love to pray with you, whatever, whatever might be on your heart. So we're going to bow in prayer here now, and if, and if you feel led to, to come up, we would love to, to pray with you after the service. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the bluntness of your word and the, and the starkness of the contrast between the indulgent life and the Christ-centered life. Heavenly Father, would you reveal the ways in which we've been, we've been led, led to, to give over to the desires of our flesh. Maybe it's in big ways, but it's probably just in little ways, spending far more time on our phone than we do in prayer, spending far more time in, in money on the things of this world than investing in kingdom goals, spending more time talking about the Super Bowl than we do about Jesus Christ with our friends. God, I ask that as your spirit convicts us that we would have humble hearts to repent and, and that an all-in devotion to Jesus would be made clear to us as we study your word and as we're led by your spirit, that you would make aware to us what it looks like to love you, Jesus, with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. God, I pray that we would have a clear vision for what our own Christ-centered life looks like. And that we would be willing and quick to cast aside worldly and fleshly habits, activities, desires that we've made ourselves comfortable with. We thank you, God, for the abundance of your grace. That as we sit here this morning, no matter how far we've wandered, or, or whether we've never never. Follow, begin following Jesus in the first place. Your grace is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for every single man, woman, and child in this room this morning. That there's none of us who've wandered too far. There's none of us who have been too given over to fleshly desires. That we can't be forgiven. And we can't begin anew today. Oh Lord, awaken our hearts to the beauty of Jesus. And may we treasure you above all things. Now may God be your exceeding joy, Christ your only hope, the Holy Spirit your unfailing comforter, 
in all your worship, in all your work, and in all your troubles until Jesus comes. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless you this week.